This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Tools for Trails, caring for people who care for trails. They provide a wide variety of quality trail building tools and accessories that are field tested and industry proven. With their extensive experience operating machines in the field, Tools for Trails is now offering quick attach hangers for Kubota U17 model excavators. Their hangers are durable and easy to install and are made in their own backyard right in Grand Junction, Colorado. So visit toolsfortrails.com to learn more and treat your excavator to some TLC. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. a few concepts for the final three episodes before I go into my summer hiatus. Now, this episode, I wanted to explore the value of the outdoors and what COVID-19 has taught or has highlighted that value. I was happy to find three guests to discuss this topic. Each of them are focused on the youth and children's side of mental health and its relation to the outdoors. Now, it wasn't until I recorded the conversation that you're about to hear that I realized the unique combination of experts on this topic. All have experience working on the front lines of children in the outdoors, but each of them work in very different environments. It's a format that I wish I could take credit for, but if I'm being honest, it was simply serendipity that made it happen. That said, I hope to repeat the model in future episodes. But moving on, as always, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 78 of Frontlines. I'm joined by three guests. The first is Melissa Workman. She comes back to the show and she's executive director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Kent County in West Michigan. Hi, Melissa. Welcome back. Hi, Brent. And next we have Mike Greer. He's the executive director of Elevation Outdoors, which works with underprivileged youth in the Kelowna, BC area. Hi, Mike. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Brent. Thanks for having us back again. And joining us for the first time is Nevin Harper. He's the Associate Professor with the School of Child and Youth Care at the University of Victoria on Vancouver Island. Hi, Nevin. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brent. Happy to be here. What I'd like to to start with is uh, how has this pandemic, how has COVID-19 affected access to the outdoors within your community? And and I'm going to use the term community broadly there. So so that might be where you're living, uh, your family, even your neighborhood, that type of thing, or perhaps the people that, that you work with or folks in your program. Um, how has this pandemic affected access to the outdoors? Here in Kelowna, through Elevation Outdoors, it impacted us pretty significantly in the middle of March. We had to shut our programs down still we're looking at being uh, back running programs in early July is our timeline. So from an access to sort of our clients and the youth that we work with, it's had a pretty significant impact. And then, you know, on a more personal sort of community wide aspect, you know, a lot of our local mountain bike trails uh, fall within provincial parklands. So those have only recently reopened. Um, but I do commend our city and our regional district. They did uh, a great job of keeping our sort of city-managed and regionally district-managed parks open and available for access and even made some modifications adjusting so that uh, some of them were sort of, you know, 
up only to try and limit, you know, people going past each other, one group up, one group down, um, in an effort to sort of mitigate some of the, the COVID risks there. So been a bit of a mixed bag here uh, in the interior. I guess I can share from the perspective here on the island with courses and, and students that were actually actively in courses at the university and having the university close its doors and send students home to finish the semester was obviously extremely disruptive. We were prepared for that as a school because we do a lot of online teaching already. So the, the transition for us as faculty wasn't that big of a deal, but the impact on our students obviously was significant, especially for those who were face-to-face learners that were taking the four-year program and their graduate programs in our classrooms. I also am involved in training and teaching in outdoor therapy practices. And so outside of the university, we have a a training program associated with a a book and some materials we've put together in the last couple of years on nature-based therapy. And we had run a training for about 12 folks in early March, had plans to run a an April program, a May program, and a June program as well. And interestingly enough, when we were telling everybody that we had to cancel the face-to-face trainings and um, we were asked if there were going to be alternatives, we quickly responded with, sure, we'll try it online. So we cut the price of the training program in half and tried to figure out pedagogically, how do you teach nature-based therapy online? Wrapped our heads around that. And then the numbers started going up and we've put 30 five people through the training so far in three sessions Um, and our June program is already filling up. And so obviously that's a reflection of people who are now stuck at home. But I also believe that there's also a stronger interest in people that are doing therapeutic work to do that work outdoors. When you have office-based spaces that now people are trying to wrap their heads around, how do I maintain distancing? How do I maintain hygiene and cleanliness? Um, all those issues related to the mitigation of COVID-19, it's actually a potential accelerant and opportunity for us to actually see more people practicing outdoors in the human service sector. Locally, parks-wise, trail-wise, I live outside of the city. So we had a a community government that decided to keep uh, regional parks open, which was nice. And so from an outdoor recreation standpoint um, there were still bike trails open there were still walking trails open there were still horse riding trails open and at least in the community that i live in not much actually changed on that that front and obviously a lot more people outdoors in their communities just walking around which has been uh, you know one of those silver linings and melissa what's happening right now in, in michigan specifically west michigan yeah well and this is such a big question we so at the Children's Advocacy Center, we primarily work with kids who've been sexually abused and a really broad population of kids. So um, one of our major concerns through the epidemic is that not only are kids not in school, but as we approach summer, they're losing access to summer camps, which is where many, especially underprivileged kids, have access to the outdoors, where they're introduced to the outdoors, where they have transportation and services provided to make those really important connections for them. So with a lot of summer camps are canceling their programming, a lot of my colleagues who work in nature preserves and nature centers are having to cut their programs. So that's a huge concern for us. And that's definitely limiting. But at the same time, Nevin and Mike both said, um, we're seeing 
an increased use of trails. So our trails have been open the entire time, thankfully. It is just a problem of, for many people in our community, that's not a possibility for transportation reasons, for employment reasons, economics. Issues of access are a big concern for us, I think, personally for me now at a time when it matters more than ever. Yeah, and and uh, you know I can speak a little bit to the the BC numbers because I I'm obviously I'm here and and so there's been a couple things that have been kind of chucked around. I think even uh, Nevin, you might have told me this is um, in British Columbia, half of the youth camps uh, are going to be operational this summer, and and of that, uh, they're they're potentially going to be running at half capacity, and so we're looking at a, a drastic reduction of the number of spaces that are available for camps. You know, it sounds like that that might also be the case in in Michigan. Yeah. Um, Mike, what's Elevation Outdoors doing? Like are how are you going to be adjusting your programming over the summer? Yeah, we recognize the importance of, you know, not only just for the sort of the the youth who access our programs on scholarships, but also in our fee for service programs. You know, these are important resources to help kids get outside and be active over the summer, but also for parents as they return to work. It's, you know, it comes down to childcare and childcare spaces are also at a premium everywhere in a time like this. So we're actually, uh, we've been working hard um, to get all of our policies and everything in place. Um, what we're doing is we're, we're cutting our group size down. We're going to be running programs of, you know, five, six at the maximum if kids are coming from the same household and can share a seat on our bus. Because as has been mentioned, you know, transportation is an issue. So we provide all the transportation needed for our programs. So we're having the number of kids in a program, but we're also doubling the number of days and weeks that we have available. So our mountain bike program that we run for seven weeks over the summer historically has been, you know, one group of 12 twice a week. Well, this year we're now going to go to two groups of five or six and we'll run it four evenings a week. And then for our summer camps, we're again having the number of participants each week, but we're going to double the number of weeks that we're offering our camps. So thankfully, we're in a position where, you know, economically, we're able to deliver programming at those small numbers and still have it be viable for us as an organization. You know, but it's, it's, it's nice, like it doubles sort of the days that we're out in the community and, and getting people out. But uh, it's certainly, I think, within the rest of our community, um, there's going to be a, a significant reduction in spaces available just as people try and navigate the, the new guidelines as, as to group sizing. If I can jump on that, Mike, um, just with the summer camps and the numbers that we had reported from the BC Camping Association, um, it was interesting to see that it was often the uh, larger, more solvent organizations that didn't know whether they were going to open the summer and could feel they could comfortably, you know, hunker in the bunker through the summer in terms of shutting down programs, not hiring the staff, not paying the the high costs of liability insurance, and just ride this out. And what I've seen in my work with organizations in BC and both nationally is a lot of creativity and innovation on the part of the smaller organizations that one, recognize that there's a significant need, which I'd like to speak to more about in a minute, but also that they might not be here next summer as an organization if they don't operate. And so the economics have driven 
a significant amount of creativity. And, and just to Mike's point and what Elevation Outdoors is doing, that's exactly the positive stories and the good good stories that I'm happy to hear. Back to those camp numbers, I think the the last number I saw for BC was within BC Camping Association. So this is not just anybody who puts camp at the end of their program. These are the like the the facility based summer camps that are registered with the BC Camping Association. Just to get a picture of that, those types of organizations. Generally, they have about three hundred thousand children and youth that go through those camps every summer. And so with what, repeating what Brent had said, if only half are operating this summer and they're only going to be operating then at half capacity, we're talking about less than 50,000 kids that will see summer camp this year in that traditional form of summer camp from those traditional camping organizations. My issue, and especially through a child and youth care lens, and it probably relates closely to the, the populations that Melissa and Mike work with in their organizations, is that Camps often subsidize access to vulnerable populations. So whether it's parents, again, that need to get back to work and they're short on childcare, there's a need for respite, there's a need for actual care or rehabilitation or treatment, kids that go to camps for particular disabilities. I mean, all of those programs often have a cost structure that's related to other kids paying full fare at camp. So if the economics are such right now that very few kids are going to camp, I just might, my gut is that there's going to be very few spots available for the vulnerable populations. And for me, there's an absolute call to action here in terms of a need for those mobile, smaller to medium-sized organizations that can't just hunker down and close their doors for the summer to step up and fill the gap with outdoor programming, nearby nature connection, nature-based therapy, and so forth. Go ahead, Melissa. Thank you. I would definitely add to that. Our concern is that and then summer camps and summer youth programming for kids who are being abused or neglected is often a place where they can identify safe adults to disclose their abuse to, where that abuse is then passed on to the appropriate law enforcement or social service agencies. For us, it's a gigantic concern that they then don't have access to those conduits to become safe and to um, help mitigate their abuse. I think as well, when we talk about the therapy side to nature, which I'm sure we're going to get to later on, it reduces that opportunity for them too, for that, the incredible healing that the outdoors provides. And you're you're bringing up a, a very significant point as well that we haven't mentioned yet is that during this pandemic, those vulnerable kids and youth have been in homes often where there is violence and substance abuse and mental health issues and the potential for abuse. We're not even, I don't think anybody has any idea how much worse it has become because of this uh, self-isolating, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the entire mitigation strategy to lock down healthy people, kids and families is just an, an absolute experiment to start with. But for many of those populations, surely we're going to see so many things exacerbated. But we are we are greatly concerned about that. Yeah, I know that conversation goes on amongst organizations up here. Is for those populations, they don't have that opportunity to get out while they're at work to speak to safe people, you know, or while kids are at school to have those those outlets where they can sort of report and get to safety. So it's, um, it is good that at least that conversation is being had. So I think there is an awareness around that. But then it's to what, 
you know, extent is anything actually being done to combat that and what tools are available to different organizations, I think is, is the real struggle going forward. Yeah, I think this is, it's, this is an issue that is, it's related to so many things. And I I think we've seen this with, with COVID-19 and, and this discussion came up quite early uh, during this pandemic was this is going to affect the people who are struggling the most. And, and, you know, we saw that with the toilet paper thing, right? Right. With people hoarding toilet paper. It's the families that are living week to week that, that can't hoard toilet paper. And suddenly when they go to get their groceries each week, there's no toilet paper left. Right. And and so we see this kind of supply demand really affect these people. And so if we do have a limited supply for kids going into these programs, you know, how do we make sure that it's the right kids that are mm-hmm. the kids that really truly need it that are getting into these programs? And and I know there's not there's not a simple answer to that, but you know, w- w- what can we do? I know here at Elevation, so it's only been in the past two years that outside of our summer camp program, which is you know just a week long day summer camp that we use to as a revenue generator. It's only been in the past two years that we've opened up fee-for-service seats in the remainder of our programs. And going this summer and into next year, uh, we'll be decreasing the number of fee-for-service seats we have available to ensure that the youth that are accessing our programs on our full or partial scholarships have as much of an opportunity as we're able to afford to provide. You know, And it's it, I mean, we're small, so that's just a small, small step that we can take. But it is certainly something that we're aware of is in order to maximize the opportunity for those that are most in need, it will actually come at a sacrifice of some earned revenues for the organization, but also availability in our programs for youth coming from families that don't meet the eligibility requirements for our scholarships. Yeah, I really want to encourage also from a client standpoint, just to Nevin's point, we really want to encourage that creative, I hate to use this cliche word right now, pivot that organizations, youth-serving organizations are trying to make. So finding virtual ways to connect kids. For us, that's leaning on educators again. It's leaning on summer camp programs to figure out how to bring the outdoors indoors, but also bring listening ears and watching eyes into their home so that they can create those spaces for them. And then finding ways to do that in their own backyards. So for me, it's twofold. It's the identifying those safe adults, and then also the experience submersing kids who've been through trauma into a sensory experience. If we go back to the the COVID-19, like the response and the mitigation strategies, and I'm thinking too internationally where um, I've got colleagues around the world who are talking about their government's interpretation of lockdown, which included pretty much 24-7 indoors with, you know, Mm -hmm. regulated allowances to get groceries by one person and get back indoors. We've also completely lost the ability for those, and not just vulnerable populations, for all children, youth families, individuals, to be able to have that refuge of nearby nature, like even just being able to spend time in a local park or beside a river or outside looking at the sky. And that that is going to have long-term effects as well. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a significant shift 
that happened in response to the pandemic, in response to the virus. And I don't follow social media. I have a LinkedIn account. I use it occasionally for, for marketing our programs, nothing else. But I still see so many articles and so many people writing about the importance of the outdoors, the importance of contact with nature for mental health, for health. And at the same time, I also saw less often, but a higher level of acceptance of screen time in terms of Mm, let's not stress about it. Let's not be concerned about our kids on our screens. And I think we're going to have an effect there too. I mean, how long is it going to take to recover from two or three months of intensive screen time that, that leads to a hijacking of creativity, less interest in the outdoors. I've got a neighbor who's concerned that his son will get burned the first time he's exposed to the sun because he hasn't been out for months. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely, I mean, I talk to parents here just as we're sort of engaging and it's, you know, I parents are like, oh yeah, you know, I used to try and manage screen time. And now if they're on their screen for eight, 10, 12 hours a day, they're like, I don't really know what else to do because the parents are trying to work and it's something that keeps the kids engaged in a sense that they're not, you know, being disruptive to their parents or their siblings trying to also get their schoolwork done. And it's, I certainly look at this as I, I think I'm probably the least educated in this, but I think there's going to be, you know, a multi-year recovery for not just the youth, but for most of our population as mm-hmm. we sort of uh, realize what being, you know, sort of at home and inside for so much time has had on populations. Um, but as has been touched on previously, I guess I'm also optimistic because as I spend more time outside in my garden just to stay close to home, I'm actually starting to recognize more and more people from my own neighborhood as they're walking or biking around, you know, just in an effort to get outside. So there does seem to be some sort of tilt towards more people spending a bit more time outside, but just simply as, you know, if they walk around the block or they cycle around their neighborhood. So it, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if anybody would be able to, to compare the outcomes between the groups of people that went for a walk every day and those that were just, you know, locked up in, in their apartment and didn't feel comfortable going out. Right. I'm kind of torn on the epidemiologic. I, I have a background in public health. So I I get that side of it. But I'm also looking at all the other impacts of quarantine, Um, the mental health aspects, the lack of access, the lack of connection. And that is hugely concerning to me, and both personally and professionally. So I mean, I think it's really going to be pretty incredible to see the results and, and pretty concerning if we don't continue to encourage that connection. I think diet and exercise have to be tied in there as well. And I know yeah. there's good public health and um, urban planning literature around, you know, increases in physical activity and levels of engagement when outdoor access, outdoor play, unstructured play, um, those things are available to children and families. And I think that the notion of lockdown and the, and the way that it was taken up by so many people Um, forcibly just limited so many opportunities for just daily exercise, which we know the connections between exercise and mental health and Mm -hmm. 
again, I'm not, I'm not seeing data on it yet. I mean, most of the science right now is focused on COVID-19 and not its, its, its impacts. And of course, with human service uh, categories of research, it's probably lower down the totem pole and we're probably not going to see it for, you know, another six months to a year before people really start finding out how bad this was for, for individuals, for families, um, definitely for those with less privilege. I can speak to it anecdotally in what we're experiencing real time. Last year, we launched a case management program for our families. So we knew we had to walk alongside families um, and not just the child victim. It doesn't, child sexual abuse or abuse in general doesn't happen in a vacuum. And we provided some short-term support services as well as connection to essential services if our families needed it. That has exponentially grown. And the need for that is so much that we are having to think about adding a second or third case management position. We have a care closet where families can come in and get essential needs. We can't keep it stocked right now. And we are also having a huge need for mental health services for parents and siblings. And so much of it is COVID and isolation and shelter in place related. Yeah, we have a local counseling agency that I work part time with called Human Nature. And uh, it's all outdoors, ecotherapy, nearby nature based. And so clients tend to meet in local outdoor spaces that they themselves consider part of their home, part of their community. And so that the time spent with the counselor really is just time spent in a restorative environment that they spend time in anyway. So the other 23 hours of the day, so to speak, they have that as a resource for them with, with the shelter in place rules that went into, into place in mid March here as well. You know, the majority of clients had to shift to some other format because unless they were crisis or, you know, absolutely in need of counseling relative to self-harm or any other behaviors, they moved to online. And what we were seeing is that the number of clients actually just dropped off. Some just weren't interested in doing online counseling. Um, Some of the young people were actually doing better because they got to be at home and hang out with their families. And uh, that's the case for more privileged families. But for some kids, they were also finding that their stress level and their anxiety was actually considerably reduced because they were at home with their families and they weren't in the school environment where the majority of their stress uh, occurs, whether that's learning disabilities or social stress. So it's just been quite interesting. And at the same time, to your point, Melissa, we've <laughs> at the same time, we were watching our, our client numbers of children and youth going down. It was the parents that were calling us afterwards saying, um, do you guys work with adults? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, re- I really want to make sure that from our standpoint, and personally, from my standpoint, I'm also a survivor of abuse. The connection with the outdoors right now, I think is more critical than ever. It provides us a space for grounding. It gives us a sense of awe and trust in something that's outside of people who've let us down. So I think it's more important than ever. I I know I'm preaching to the choir <laughs> and probably on this podcast, I'm preaching to the choir, <laughs> but I don't think that we can create enough opportunities for, for kids and, and adults also. It's critical right now. 
Yeah, and you're absolutely. Bang. I think we're all in agreement in the value yeah. of of outdoor spaces. That I and I'm willing to guess that everybody who's listening to this podcast is in guess. agreement as well. <laughs> um, but maybe what we can what we can kind of discuss is is there is there a type of outdoor space that is is more valuable than another? Like it, you know, for me when I think of when I feel most at, relaxed, it's it's when I get if I can get further away when I can get outside a cell range. I, I like to always joke that you know if I throw a ferry trip into some sort of a travel somewhere, I just it just clicks me off. And if I can put two ferry trips into a road trip, I'm even more relaxed, right? And and it's just I I just need to get further and further away, and I find that that's I'm able to to get rid of a lot of the noise that surrounds me. But we saw that over the the last two months of those long distance trips, those big expeditions, those those really wild remote places just weren't possible or weren't accessible or shouldn't be accessed. And so what's, what's the scale? Like, is there, is the backyard enough or do we need more than just the backyard uh, when it comes to the types of outdoor spaces that are out there and what's going to help with, with everybody? I would think we need all different sizes, you know, like when it, when it really comes down to it, because this is sort of a, a BC lens that I look on this, but I think when our government came out and said, you know, stay home, but, you know, still go outside and get exercise and be in nature, you know, for those of us that spend our lives pursuing time outside, we're like, oh, well, sweet, I can still go into the mountains. They told me to, to still go do that. And for many others, their version of getting outside and spending time in nature is going to the green space, you know, the urban park down the street or, you know, around the corner from their house. And it's, I think, for, you know, from a from a youth standpoint, if you can't introduce them to that green space down the street or around the corner, then the likelihood of them transitioning to later in life, being passionate about those big wide open spaces may not happen you know so to me i would think ultimately we need all of the spaces because that's how we ensure that there is sort of opportunity for everybody to access nature and get the benefits that come from time in nature i agree i think it can happen on all scales i'm really trying to focus on gratitude through all of this and two things that i'm incredibly well three things i'm really grateful for that a we didn't lose access to the outdoors and for me specifically trails and riding, but also that it's springtime and I, I, I know it is in Canada as well as in the States. Um, <laughs> it's springtime. And for us at the Children's Advocacy Center last year, we just completed funding for a healing garden, which construction on that starts in August. And my team and I are just crawling toward that because it's a space right outside our doors where we can take our kids and introduce them to very tactile experiences and sight and sound of nature. They'll be a part of planting some of the gardens we'll have in there, but also just the the feeling, the listening, the being present in the outdoors, which is right outside our door. So they won't have to go very far to experience that. So I I think as Mike alluded to and or explicitly stated, it can be on any level. Yeah, I would echo that as well. The, the uh, if you want to call it like a micro scale version of nature, um, 
can be equally impactful. And I, I think especially with the training of youth workers and counselors in using the outdoors, um, actually, I don't even like the term using, in being in relationship with the outdoors as a co-therapist is a very powerful process to learn for oneself as well as to work with clients. We have um, opportunities to do little sort of micro adventures. I can think of, um, you know, I've worked with this one client, a 10 year old, and there's a, a very small stream and little forested trail to get down to the beach from where he lives. And the crossing of that stream will be different depending on how much it's rained in the past 24 hours. And there's options. There's a slippery log that can be crossed. There's a couple of stones that are pretty secure. There's a place where you can jump to clear it. And depending on that young person's needs for that day, I as counselor can make decisions about how much risk he can or wants to be exposed to. These are very, very small spaces. We're talking about, you know, a couple hundred square feet, but a full adventure and a full nature-based therapy session can take place in there just because there's so much opportunity and, and that environment affords me and that individual all these opportunities for learning and challenging ourselves and <clears throat> the opportunity there is also on a um, uh, like a self-regulatory level, like a, an individual can have struggles with self-regulation in certain environments, but if they feel connected and safe and that social connection is in place, then it's sometimes okay to take risks because you can talk about them in a safe place with someone, a trusting other and Nature just has this endless opportunity of topography and intensity and distance. Um, so again, back to the all scales. I, I 15 years ago thought that every young person had to go on a month-long wilderness expedition. That was the work that I did with, with young <laughs> offenders. And when I moved into academia, I tried to bring that forward as my research agenda. And I got knocked down pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> And then I started focusing on outdoors and active as the two central pieces of my work. And so everything that I do is related to getting people outdoors and getting them active. And I'm equally interested in people being inactive in the outdoors as well. Mm -hmm. So I had to pare it down. But I say all scales. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there is an inherent um, sense of agency that can be reclaimed when you just sit outside also and you're surrounded by seasonality and the predictability of nature that for me personally I can't find no offense to anybody but I can't find in people or I lost that trust in people I can experience that in the cycle of nature and I that's very powerful also which I can't do if I'm riding a bike and constantly moving so just being still in it matters as much yeah, that I mean that speaks to a past episode in which we we discussed you know what a mountain biker is are they are they a, an egocentric person or are they an ecocentric user of of the outdoors and when it comes to to mental health does the type of outdoor space matter you know when I think of and just to to kind of have my 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 mountain bike lens on things like you know a a perfectly groomed flow trail is that the same as just a, a a wild place? Even if that wild place is just an you know an empty lot 
down the street. Um, but something that an area that, that you can just create and do whatever you want there where there's not even potentially a trail. Um, is that better for, for somebody's mental health or, or specifically youth mental health? I could speak to this for hours <laughs> <laughs> because it's an area that the fields that I work in have not been very sophisticated about. We've had mm. large programs that have run for decades that run programs, meaning we offer a 21 day program. We offer a 15 day program and all sorts of people sign up for these. And based on what they read in the brochure or on the web, they sign up and they go, but they all have the same programmed experience that on day one, we do this on day seven, we're doing this and they move through that, how that relates to someone's preferences or how that relates to how someone responds to an environment, whether it's triggering, whether it's meaningful, whether it has some numinous spiritual quality to it, whether it's terrifying is where we're not really doing a very good job. And so I work with a a collective of researchers that do different types of outdoor therapies. And I'll just list a few like adventure therapy and wilderness therapy and forest therapy and eco therapy, surf therapy, There's so many approaches. And what's the most interesting thing to me is that as clinicians and practitioners, they're slowly starting to identify what types of environments work for different types of people in different ways. And so my experience, at least with young offenders um, in the justice system in British Columbia from from, 15 plus years ago now, was that that the group would respond or individuals would respond to different environments in different ways. And so if we were heading up into a valley of mountains on Vancouver Island and you had to enter that deep, dark forest. Now that had a very, very different response from some individuals compared to say when you broke open from the forest and you were up on a very narrow ridge on a mountain. Some people seem to appreciate the exposure and the openness and the long view, but really didn't like going through the deep, dark forest. And if you think metaphorically, that could be interpreted. I mean, dream analysis would have fun with this, but I think just the visceral, physical reactions that I had seen and felt in the people that I was working with and walking with, it told me long time ago that we don't really understand which environments work for whom, for how long, and when. And so I think it's it comes back to the basics of, of youth work and counseling, that you have to be in relationship. You have to treat people with the utmost dignity. You have to ask a lot of questions, and you have to check in constantly. How is this landing? Like, we're, ex- we're on an exposed ridge here now. Like, two steps that way, and we would all be, you know, in deep trouble. How are you feeling about this? And if this environment's not working for you, what right do I have to keep you in that environment? So the dignity of risk in that I believe that we have to have challenge and risk in our lives and the support and resources in place to balance that like a, a scaled approach. Yeah, I can sort of follow that up more anecdotally through the work with Elevation Outdoors is, you know, we offer some kids the hiking program that we offer is the only one they're really interested in. I just want to hike, you know, it's nice, it's slow, I get great views. 
And then, you know, you get some of the kids that are in snowboarding and mountain biking and you're like, Hey, do you want to go hiking? They're like, Oh no, not, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And it's like, we offer a sailing program and like you try and introduce the concept of going sailing to kids that are more interested in sort of the, the higher risk activities. And, and it isn't the same. Like I, you know, their enjoyment won't be the same. So to go back to your original question, Brent, like of like a, you know, beautiful flow trail versus an empty field, that really is going to come down to an individual. And then that can change on a day-to-day basis. Did they have a good sleep last night and a meal this morning? Or, you know, were they in a heightened state of stress all night last night and, you know, had a Pop-Tart for breakfast and that can impact their enjoyment and what they get out of the experience in each of those spaces on any given day or on in any given sort of moment. So it's, it, uh, yeah, it's, it, it can be, takes different places for all kinds of different people, I guess, is what it comes down to from what I've seen. To kind of wrap this conversation up, what I'd love to know is some advice from from each of you. And I think that you know those that are listening are are going to have many different hats. Um, they're going to have potentially uh, volunteer jobs or, or paid jobs at trail associations or or with camps and youth programs or all sorts of different things out there. But the biggest thing that's going to kind of tie all of us together is that we are users of the outdoors we're trail users and and we get out there and i think coming out of this self-isolation i have recognized that uh, it's been a long time since i've interacted with people outside of my family and outside of of a zoom call and that kind of thing and so i feel like there's a there's just going to be a lot of awkwardness out there with people and so what do you want to tell people who are going out, going back into the outdoors, who are going out into the outdoors and maybe finding more people out there. What's the, the advice that you can give to make sure that everybody's just cohabitating well and being respectful of everybody. And, and how can we make sure that we're, we're helpful to everybody that's out there right now? So I come from the trail advocacy world prior to this position as Brent knows, but um, I, I, I do want to go back to that movement that I really start started to see happen, which was inclusivity and tolerance and not just tolerance, but accepting people on the trail. Here in West Michigan, we have seen incredible user use and new user use over the last couple of months because our our trails have remained open. Bike shops can't keep bikes on the shelf right now. And and so I just really want to encourage, and I and I know there's conversation around this, um, the welcoming of new users to trails, helping people understand trail etiquette, but in a very patient and kind and loving way, helping them understand the importance of trail support and advocacy and why trails are built a certain way. We're seeing a really big problem with people building rogue trails and optional lines um, because they maybe don't like the way the trail rolls. But just helping people understand very patiently why they're built that way when possible, but more than anything, being inclusive and welcoming new users to the trails, especially as we look to ways to try to get more people out there. Yeah, I would I would echo a lot of that. I think one of the biggest pieces of advice is like, remember how good it feels to be outside 
And then remember to maybe take some of that feeling and that excitement and that stoke and help your trail advocacy associations, help organizations that are breaking down those barriers to, to get us outside. I think there's a lot of opportunity coming out of this for people that have had their eyes opened to the value of what it is to be able to get outside. And perhaps, you know, we can all come together in a, as a larger user group of just people who like the outside to advocate for more protected spaces or for more parks or for more trails for advice, like share your passion. Like if you can tell that's a new person on the trail, whether it's on a bike, on skis, on, you know, just a hike, like if their first, second day out, they get chewed out and yelled at by more experienced users like oh i can't believe you didn't know to do this blah 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 (laughs) you're never yeah like don't shame these people like welcome them like welcome to the outside like you, you know outside is the best side like come come get it and remember that covid and this whole experience while it's shared globally it's such an individual experience for every single person. And even, you know, in my household, the days that I'm doing well are the days that, you know, my partner is maybe not doing as well. Um, And it's like, we live in the, you know, we have the same environment that we're in. So this is an incredibly individual experience for everybody. So maybe you've been getting back outside for weeks now, but maybe this is somebody else's first day back outside. You know, and it's, we've all got to be respectful of each other out there and recognize that none of us has any more right to that trail or that park than anybody else. So just be respectful and share your stoke rather than, you know, shaming someone and maybe being the reason that that person never tries mountain biking again or never goes for a hike again. Those are great suggestions. I feel like I'm at dirt church right now. (laughs) (laughs) well i i was i was a bit surprised when brent asked me to come on front lines because i i do ride i do own a mountain bike but i don't ride very often and i don't really consider myself a mountain biker because it's that infrequent these days i do think though i want to share a couple things that i i thought about when i looked at your website brent and and thought Mm -hmm. about the the listeners of this particular program and Maybe these are recommendations, maybe they're just a couple of ideas, but some of the work I do is looking at this area called forest therapy, which in essence is mindfulness practice in forests. And there's been 20 books written in the last two years, and it's seen the development of, I think, four international training organizations, and it's just caught fire. And the reason it's caught fire is that in Korea and Japan, the research base is so strong that they've been able to have government funding used to actually protect entire tracts of old growth forests as therapeutic forests. It's just another conservation movement, but I think the angle that they've taken is brilliant. And so they've even funded these retreat centers for people to go on weekends or weekdays for their health and and recreation. The reason I bring that up is that I'm troubled by one aspect of it. And then that's some of the organizations that are now training people as forest therapy guides are also now designating trails. They're qualifying and designating forest therapy trails. And they're making decisions based on the criteria that they set for forest therapy as a practice, meaning 
if it's far enough away from roads so that you don't have highway noise, if it's not near flight paths, so you don't have air traffic noise, certain density of forest cover, the canopy. I, it's to me, I, maybe I just raise it as a little flag. I can't speak to it well enough. I have tried to read on it. I'm not getting much information, but it's it's just questionable for me, but I'm sure it's something that any trail builder, any trail association has had to deal with in terms of who are going to be the users. How are we going to designate the trail? How are we going to rate the trail? How's the trail going to get used? Is certain use going to affect it in a negative way for other users and so on and so forth. So I'll just put that out there. And the second one is maybe about builders of trails. Some of the research I've done is around outdoor risky play and child development. And we're talking about early years through to uh, the tail end of childhood into the adolescent years where the opportunity for young people to experiment with speed, with height, being around dangerous elements like fire and around rivers, the possibility of getting lost or at least feeling like you could hide and people might not know where you are, and rough and tumble play are these six elements of outdoor risky play and there's an entire body of research now growing around this i just think that if people are designing spaces for people to say take children you take those elements and you try to instill them into a plastic and metal playground it's really difficult without setting kids up for failure but if you can create trails that actually are quite creatively traveling through different terrain and offering children those opportunities, maybe to climb, maybe to go fast downhill, maybe to be near a cliff or a river. Shrubbery and low bush that often gets cut away in parks should be left for children to crawl under and hide in, even though it makes supervision more difficult. Those are just just some ideas maybe for, for builders. And I know we're not talking about just mountain bike trails and hiking trails, but even the design of urban parks are a little too sterile, mm-hmm. right? The first thing that often happens is it's either a lot converted to a park or it's a forested area that's chopped down and then shrubs are planted. We just need to think a little more creatively about what a child might need in their development and not just how do we keep children safe in those play spaces. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and letting kids take a few more risks than they have been lately because we're such a risk averse society now that I think when someone in, in child injury prevention cites that children aren't visiting emergency rooms anymore and they're touting that i kind of see that as a problem (laughs) i agree it's it's correlated to you know this rampant mental health issues that we're seeing in our adolescent populations at least i have a phd student right now who's actually trying to unpack this over the next three years she wants to see if there is a connection between those two things wow good luck to her yeah, I know. That's what I said to her, too. <laughs> <laughs> they need to learn and earn, like, learn that that they have control over things, too. Mm-hmm. Right? That's such an important relationship and, and, and gain confidence through that. Yeah. And, and be very, very open and transparent about the fact that many of the people we work with have far too much risk in their lives already, whether it's, you know, trauma or abuse in their past. So we need to enter into this really cautiously, but at the same time, so many kids are growing up under the supervision of their parents in their backyard. And 60 years ago, kids at 10 years of age could ride their bike five kilometers away from the house any day of the week. 
10 years ago, it might've been a kilometer if that, and today it's like, no, I'll drive you there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was just to bring my bikes metaphor into this as well. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. (laughs) I think with that, you know, I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to join the show and to have this great conversation. All three of you, thank you so much. And, uh, and hopefully we hear from you again soon. This episode of the podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, Musqueam, and Stolo Nations. My guests joined me from the traditional territory of the Ottawa, Peoria, Songhees, Esquimalt, the Kwangan, and the Okanagan. If you're curious to learn more about the traditional territory that you occupy and recreate on, then visit native-lands.ca. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. And you can send me an email or audio file to info at frontlinesmtb.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. Now, there's a new book recommendation in the book club. It's Nature-Based Therapy, A Practitioner's Guide to Working Outdoors with Children, Youth, and Families. And it was written by one of my guests today, Dr. Nevin Harper, along with authors Catherine Rose and David Siegel. In the show notes, you'll also find links to the results of the BC government's trail strategy review and a link to People for Bikes' new federal e-bike rulemaking page. And to speak more on that, here's Ashley Seward, regulatory and policy analyst with People for Bikes. If you're looking to support improved e-bike access on public lands, now's your moment to speak up. As you may know, current federal land management laws do not recognize what a modern, low-speed e-bike is, but this could change. There are now four federal agencies who are participating in rulemakings to update these outdated laws. These rules could dramatically improve e-bike access for riders across the country, but the federal government needs to hear that you support these updates. Visit peopleforbikes.org slash federal e-bike rulemaking to learn how you can submit a comment in favor of these rules and work to improve e-bike access nationally today. Thanks, Ashley. And a big thanks to all of my guests today. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Wellneck and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails. <laughs>